0: This is, and this isn't just because it's this, but this is one of my favorite texts in scripture. It's a beautiful prayer of Paul. And so I just want to read it for us, read it as a prayer for us. Ephesians three fourteen to 21 says this. For this reason, I kneel before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let me...
1: Can you hear me? Is this on? Wow. Um, A couple of things. I was very surprised at my very first pastor's appreciation. Very special. Um, And because it's pastor's appreciation, I want to appreciate you back by letting you know I don't have a mic today, and so you're going to be able to hear everything that I say, which is really exciting. Also may not be a gift to you, but I love hand gestures, and that's why I've asked for them. So I apologize in advance if you become extremely distracted by the way I'm moving and my flexibility now to be able to move my hands like this. Uh, But it is a special night because as Brad said, we are finishing up Ephesians today for now and ending chapter three. And if you're joining us for the first time, Uh, Let me just adjust this. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been doing this deep dive of a letter written by a pastor and missionary while he was in prison. And he's writing this letter to a young church, a church plant that he helped establish in an ancient city called Ephesus, which is a city much like Vancouver, very similar, urban, multi-ethnic, and multi-religious. And so we're going through section by section unearthing good news that we can live out in our daily lives right now. And today we come to the end of chapter three. And Paul up until this point, the one who writes the letter, is unfolding for us the plan of God to make all things new. A new people, a new building project. All of it through Christ and in Christ. And here, at this point of the letter that we have just read, he pauses to pray. He goes from explaining to praying, from exposition to intercession. And there are three questions we want to ask about Paul's prayer today. One, why is Paul praying? Number two, what does Paul pray for? And the last question I want to ask, or we want to ask today is, does Jesus... Pray for us today. And before I do so, I'd love to enter into prayer with you once again. Holy Spirit, would you come? Come into our hearts. Come into our midst this evening. And may you help us hear you and see you. Not just in this space, but even in our situation right now. And we bring our hearts to you. Would you breathe the gospel into it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first question we want to ask, why is Paul praying? I want us to put ourselves in the pastoral shoes of Paul. Paul, who before this, before his pastoral role, describes himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees or the Jew of Jews, meaning he had power, affluence, authority within the religious leaders of his day. He actively pursued Christians and and punishing a lot of them to death. And then this persecutor, he turned into the persecuted. He turned into a pastor. And he gets personal with us in the middle of chapter three. There we get a window into the calling God has given him to reveal the mystery of God's wisdom through the church by inviting the Gentiles into the holy of holies. And this just really rubbed his former colleagues the wrong way. So much so that they started to pursue Paul, put him in prison, and wanted to kill him. And then somehow, at the same time, He is to pastor a young church into racial reconciliation, Jews and Gentiles together, by rebuilding a bridge to the forgiveness of all sins in Jesus. It is a pastoral role I do not personally want. And I hope his pastor's appreciation was grand. (laughs) Because this role is quite weighty. And so the instinct to kneel and pray seems really appropriate. You know, Paul could very well be feeling overwhelmed with the task of pastoring a young church while he's in chains and not present. And yet, I sense no panic in his prayer. Paul doesn't begin with, man, I hope this works out. Or please sign a petition to get me out of jail. Though I would imagine maybe he did feel that, pray that. But his particular prayer, the one we just heard over us is a prayer out of revelation and the revelation is that god is good and that he is powerful in other words prayer doesn't start with paul it starts with god god speaks first we get to pray because he first revealed himself to us we love and know love because he first loved us Paul begins his prayer like this, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And again, Paul was not taught to address Adonai, the Lord God, in this way. By his traditional Jewish upbringing, instead, he is following a different teaching of a rabbi or teacher called Jesus. And it was Jesus Jesus who taught his disciples to pray and to address God, the God of the universe, as Father. Radical. You see, the existential question in those days wasn't, does God exist? In our Western, postmodern society, that's our existential question. For the Jewish people, it was a given. They had ancestors that literally saw pillars of clouds by day and pillars of fires by night. God exists. So the existential question that day was, is God knowable? Can we know him? And Jesus himself says that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. And so he comes to the world with a resounding yes. God is knowable. He is knowable. And he wants us to know God personally. And so the assumption Paul makes when he prays is that God is knowable and wants to be known and is making himself known to us as his children. Jesus' Father is our Father, and the Father delights in Jesus, and he delights in us in the same way. What is true of Jesus is true of us. And the Father expresses unmerited delight for the Son. Jesus, as the crowd around him saw, heard the Father's voice from heaven as he emerged from the waters of the Jordan River. And it's recorded for us in Matthew, where we can hear God audibly say, this is my Son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. And the father's love for the son is not based on, he did not say this after he rose again. He did not say this after his first miracle, his first teaching. This is before anything else. Before he ever did anything. Before he embraced the cross. God said, I love you. And the father's love for the son is true also of us. Yes, Paul prays because there's all kinds of pressure. The pressure is real. Pastorally, situationally, it's all around him. But I also think Paul prays because he knows the Father the way Jesus knows the Father. He knows the Father as well. He knows the love and favor of the Father. He knows the goodness and power of God. And he longs for this young church that he has helped establish, the one that he's writing to, to know him too. Paul wants you to know God in this way. So much so that Paul kneels. And again, a tiny detail. And to our Western Christian minds already filled with images of people kneeling while they pray, this may seem like a small and minute detail. And significant. Of course, people kneel when they pray. But again, this is not a common thing. A Jewish person is not taught to pray kneeling. They're taught to pray only standing up. And so Paul expresses externally what he feels inwardly. He's kneeling out of a deep reverence and a fervent longing that we might know God down from our intellect, our minds, our thoughts, our cerebral processing down to our very bloodstream. God wants us to know him in this way. And Paul prays because God is noble. And what God has made known to Paul is the unveiling of his plan to make all things new. In Philip Yancey's words, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. Um, There's a story I know, I know about someone who began their journey of sobriety through AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the big book of AA, there's 12 steps, and it has a lot of God language because Christians helped develop this program. Some now, or mostly now, they refer to God as a higher power in the 12 steps. And in step number two, it's all about believing and depending on a power that's greater than yourself. And this person, you to AA, um, says to their sponsor, because you get one when you sign up, he says, "I'm all in on the 12 steps. I'm all in, but I'm out on God. Don't get me wrong. I want to get sober." I want to do that, but don't expect me to talk to some cosmic therapist in the sky that tells me to say no to gin and tonic. And the sponsor agrees, that's fair. And the sponsor's like, why don't you come with me? Um, come watch, let's go to the beach. So he picks up the, uh, the AA member. And they drive to this nearby beach and they just sit on the sand next to each other for a minute. Watching the sun go down, silence passes, they keep watching. Just beyond the ocean, the sun goes down, the sky changes, and the sponsor finally breaks the silence. And he asks him, do you see anything more powerful than you? And the AA attendee says, yeah, I think I do. The sponsor says, great, start there. Paul doesn't start with himself, what he can do or what he needs to do. He starts with what God has revealed about who he is, God who is more powerful than Paul, God who is more powerful than us. When you read Ephesians 1 to 3, do we sense that there's a greater power at work, both in the world and in us? And Paul would say, great, start there. Start there. So on to the second question. What is the actual contents of the prayer? What does Paul actually pray for? Now, we know why Paul prays. According to the commentators, Paul asks for nothing in moderation. Nothing in moderation. The resounding theme of Ephesians is the word more. More power, more love, more grace. And this prayer is no different. It's filled with lavish superlatives. Daryl Johnson paints a beautiful picture of Paul taking our heart into his hands, lifting it up to the Father, and asks that we experience the fullness of the gospel. Don't hold anything back, God. Let us experience all of it. And the Father loves to give. And this is all language from the letter out of his glorious riches, immeasurable grace, and unsurpassed mercy. So let's dive in. The first thing that Paul asks for is for an inner being to be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And now the inner being and the heart are very similar. The inner being refers to the center of our personhood, our true selves, if you will. And at the center of that personhood is the heart, which is the control center. We traditionally or maybe culturally know the heart as a place where our feelings come from, but the biblical understanding of the heart is a little bit more than that. It's where our deepest affections and love reside, inner being and the heart. Which means, which means in some ways, this statement is really true of us. We are what we love. We are what we love. And while new information or education can sway us for some time, and it can be good information, really good information, it can only move us to change some behaviors that can be changed out of sheer will. Like if I was to hear a study on Coke Zero, like tomorrow, it causes, I don't know, what's the most common one? Probably some kind of defect or I don't know, like it'll shorten my life. And that would sway me for a little time. Maybe I'll give it up for a month. But listen, I love Coke Zero. I love it, to a fault, truly to a fault. New information can only do so much. And I can only do so much by sheer will, but I will go back to what I love, and that is a cold Coke Zero. Information doesn't change what we love. It cannot sway our affections. And this is what Jesus gets at within his own sermon found in the Gospel of Matthew. He takes all the commandments like adultery, murder, forgiveness, and it drives them deeper. In Matthew 5, 27 to 28, it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The emphasis is mine. Jesus is saying that it's not enough that you're faithful to your spouse or partner. That's almost the bare minimum. But then he also gets underneath all of that. And he says, if you even so much as look at someone lustfully as if to possess them, to use them for your own gratification, you have committed adultery. New information can only get us so far. Maybe to get us seriously reconsider our patterns of behavior, but unless our hearts are changed, we will continue to go back to our deepest affections, our deepest loves. And it can only be moved, it can only be changed when a new affection removes or unseats a lesser love. It's only then that we change as human beings. What Paul is not asking for here is more knowledge of theology or information transfer and retention. Have you noticed that? He doesn't ask for that. I hope they remember verbatim all the words of my letter. He's not even asking for more willpower or more discipline, he's asking for inner strength within our hearts so that Christ might dwell in our hearts. And it's not just accepting Jesus into our hearts. You have literally probably heard those words said to you at some point, at least I did. And this is true, the moment we accept Jesus and our eyes become open to him is a very beautiful and powerful moment. But it also it's also about what happens after that moment, continuously. The Greek word that Paul uses here is katokeo, which means to permanently inhabit or settle down. In Middle Eastern culture, when one receives a guest in their home, the guest becomes a master of the house. All resources, schedules, and attention goes to this guest. And I've seen this, I've seen this happen in my own home, or my sister's home, actually. Um, sorry, I just pointed to, that's my sister. Usually, your illustration's not in the audience, but today you get a fun little treat. My cousin was here for two weeks from the Philippines, and my sister gave up her room, her her bed. And her bed is is real nice. You know, it's got the princess drapes, and it's a queen size bed for one person, you know? You can just sleep there for hours and hours. And she gave up that cushy bed for a uh, camping mat for two weeks. And here's the kicker she slept over at my parents' room. And I was FaceTiming with them, I'm like, what are you doing? Why, why can, how come I can hear mom's commentary in the background of what I'm saying to you? It's like, I've been sleeping here for two weeks. Do you not realize that? And I just laughed for a full-on minute. I'm like, I forgot. You're so generous. Jesus doesn't seek to be a transient guest in a hotel in our heart. But he seeks to be a permanent dweller. Not just the moment when you let him in, when you let him in the door, but to have access to every part of our house, of our heart, over time. This is an important part in our discipleship because we may have a tendency over time, no matter how mature or older we get in our Christian walk, to treat Jesus like a roommate. You may have shared access to living spaces, maybe a bathroom, but Jesus as your roommate does not have access to your space, right? Like your bedroom, your drawers, your closets, that's my stuff, you don't get to look in there. Personal property like your phone, your browsing history, your bank account, that's yours too. Your roommate does not have access to that. But that's not the kind of dwelling that Jesus seeks, it's something more. I think it's the reason why we have songs like The Heart of Worship, where it says, you search much deeper within, through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. And so I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you. Followers of Jesus wander away from the heart of worship almost instantly, even literally hours maybe after a service, after a service. And the heart of worship is a stubborn preference of Jesus above all else, loving him above all else. And this only happens when he deeply resides in all parts of our heart, the place where our deepest affections reside. And all parts of our heart include rooms that we keep closed because there's memories in there we don't like to go back into. The closets that hide all our different identities the digital spaces that have our attention, that have all our browsing histories that we clear every time. But here's the thing, Jesus will not force his way in. Paul says it's through faith that Jesus dwells in our hearts. It's this deepening trust that Jesus can look into our closets, look into our bank accounts, look into those rooms or attics and not turn away from us. The heart of worship is not money or screen times, don't get me wrong, but they are the surfaces of a deeper indication of who and what is captivating our hearts, our imaginations, who's swaying our affections and our ultimate love. So we can sense that. What Paul is asking for is nothing short of a complete heart transplant, a miracle even, that goes further and deeper from the moment of accepting Jesus into our hearts the first time, but a kind of heart that is willing to trust that Jesus can behold and hold the messy and broken parts of who we are. I remember reading this story or from an article of someone who was struggling with pornography. And he was recounting his moments of struggle and patterns of relapse around dealing with this addiction. And there were many bad ones before there were better decisions. But one reason above all else seemed to help him turn off the screen and turn away. And he said, I love my wife. I have never stopped. But when I finally let her in on what's happening to me since I was 13 and how it was eating me inside out, she was hurt. No doubt about it. And she expressed that to me deeply. And then after that, a miracle happened. She she said that she would walk with me throughout all of this as I battled this addiction. How do I repay that kind of grace? How do I repay that kind of love? And I realized I would never want to hurt her in this way again. I love my wife more than I love a quick gratification on the screen. And I can keep saying no because my greater yes was to my recommitment to love my wife better than I did yesterday. Paul's prayer is not fuzzy sentimentality. It gives us, and it gives us reason to believe that we will receive it, this inner strength to say no to everything else and to choose Jesus again and again. That's the heart of worship. And Paul's second fervent request is this, that we would have the power together with the people of God to know the love of God that is beyond knowledge, which means that love, tangibly speaking, is not learned in a vacuum. It's not learned on our own or taught in a textbook, but it's understood in the experience of relationships. My daughter doesn't know the word love when she's a newborn. She doesn't know the language or the sounds that make up the word love. But she feels it in the way we hold her close. She knows it when we smile back at her or fulfill her tangible needs. She knows love. You can't tell her she doesn't know love. And she knows it through a relationship with us. John Stott put it this way, It needs the whole people of God to understand the whole love of God, all the saints, all together. There is a dimension of God's love through nature and private prayer. But Paul is saying here to grasp and lay a hold of the unmeasurable love of Jesus in all its richness, we need the whole people of God. And um, let me tell you a story for a moment. I was having this really bad and um, exhausting week. I was probably six months into this pastoral role, uh, my youth pastoral role at the way. And this bad week or exhausting week, I was deeply questioning why I stepped into this pastoral ministry. Was I even cut out for it? I felt so lost and untethered. And to be fair, I probably do this every week, but this week felt particularly bad. And at the end of this week, I went to a women's worship night at my church at the time, and I sort of said this almost throwaway prayer after the first session of worship. I said, God, if you're still in this with me, I need to know, I need to know. Not expecting a response at all, just more like throwing it in the air. Hope you catch it, God. I tried my best to be present, and I was up in the balcony at the time, and I remember thinking, I think I wanna go uh, at the main sanctuary, so I went downstairs and stood at the doorway for a moment, as the second worship set went on. And I remember seeing my small group member break away from from the crowd or the rows and come right to me. And she said, I was just looking for you. And here you are. I think God has a word for you. And I said, okay. And in my head, man, this better not be a hard word or a weird one. It's just not my week. Not today, God. And she said this. God knows where you are, and he wants you to trust that you know his voice, the good shepherd's voice. He's in it with you, and he wants you to hear this voice above the storm you may be feeling. I was floored. She sought me out with no context for what I was feeling at all, but in another way, it's like God sought me out and through the risk and vulnerability of my small group member, poured water to my dry and weary soul that night. There's only so much I can know about God within my prayer closet, or studying scripture for hours, both important and essential practices for me. But there's something about hearing the voice of God through the vulnerable act of his people that makes me absolutely floored that God sees me and knows me that he's in it with me. And the radical thing is God loves to do this through his church, through us. Because we need the whole people of God to know the whole love of God in new and profound ways. And I'm sure you have stories of where the church has come through as the hands and feet of God when you have needed it the most. There's so many good stories like that. And Paul says it is a way to grasp the richness of the very love of Jesus. And this is a knowledge we can only gain in relationship. However, people fail, don't they? Like, isn't that a given? Like, does Paul know that? Does Jesus know that? That leaders fail us and we fail our leaders and church hurt just abounds, it's everywhere. It's everywhere, isn't it? And we're supposed to give people who come through our doors a taste of heaven, but instead they leave with a sour taste of hell. And I understand when those who have left the church say, the church hurt me, so I need to walk away from the church. Or I've also heard this, the church hurt me so it cannot heal me. And I understand that getting away from a time from the communities and spaces that hurt us make a lot of sense. We need those boundaries to make us feel safe again. And it is a step towards hopefully healing that hurt And the only pushback that I would say is a statement or even the feeling of the church hurt me so that it cannot heal me. It's like saying people hurt me and people cannot, so people cannot heal me, which is not true. Unhealthy people can hurt you, but healthy people can heal you. Healthy relationships. I want us to look at this quote And it is a quote from Oprah. I don't know if you know her, like the Oprah Winfrey. I don't even know if I have to say her last name. I have never met another woman named Oprah. And she co-wrote this book with Dr. Bruce Perry called What Happened to You. And it's a lengthy quote, so so buckle up. She says, as I was preparing to leave my family and the life I knew, my father's advice to me was find a church home. And at the time, I thought it was because he wanted to make sure I kept Jesus in my life. Looking back now, though, as we talk about the healing power of relationships, I realize it wasn't just about finding a place of worship. It was about finding a community and discovering a true, lasting connection in a new city. It was your church family that made sure you had a place to go for Sunday dinner. The quote continues, I see that a key to healing from trauma is finding your church home, your people, your community. This can help build resilience, post-traumatic healing, and ultimately, post-traumatic wisdom. It can help you become wise. And then Dr. Bruce Perry replies, and he's an expert in child trauma and has been teaching in the field of psychiatry for 30 years. He replies, absolutely. A healthy community is a healing community. And a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. In other words, an unhealthy church can hurt us, but a healthy church can heal us. And this only happens when we gain the courage to re-engage. And this is not easily gained. This is not me saying pray harder or just get over it. It may take years even. But Paul assures us that we are rooted and grounded in love. Though we might need to deconstruct for a time and take real time to heal, our healing takes place in the love of Jesus, rooted and grounded, so secure. I have personally seen people experience the healing power of a healthy community. I remember this one conversation I had um, in my small group, like our first small group, and it was, the first time we were opening our doors and our living rooms to community again after the lockdown. And she said she felt safe again to open up, to become herself. That the very community that opened up its doors after years of isolation was, in her words, loving her back to life. That is my hope for our church. A place for people to be loved back to life. Back into relationship with Jesus through a loving community. This is Paul's prayer, that we would be strong enough to lay a hold of the breadth and length, the height and depth of Christ's love, which traditionally, within the historic church, has been interpreted as a cross. Paul prays this, because he knows the external and internal circumstances that prevent us from laying a hold of this love, Some of us are facing circumstances that make us question God's love for us. There's some of us who have experienced very deep church hurt. There's some of us that have childhood experiences that prevent us from trusting God's very goodness. There are some of us who've done terrible things in the past that we simply cannot forget, no matter how hard we try. And there are some of us that have been trying their best to be good Christians, but the pressure to always be good is bound to crack us wide open. And some of us are so deeply buried within our patterns of sin that our shame tells us that our sins disqualify us from ever coming to God. Like again, you did it again, and the list goes on. It's not even exhaustive. The stories of real pain that prevent us from grasping Christ's love for ourselves. Brute strength alone is no longer enough. White-knuckled obedience is no longer enough. We are in dire need of this inner strength and the whole people of God to empower us to hold on to Jesus who has taken a hold of us And so Paul takes our heart into his hands and prays the gospel into them. What a picture. What a picture. And the last question I want us to ask tonight is um, Does Jesus pray for us today? I love the call and response. Does Jesus pray for us today? I find it a striking question because I almost imagine Jesus sitting at a desk somewhere in heaven answering like piles of paper, like prayer requests. It's a big pile of no and a small pile for yes. And, you know, I imagine him like, I can't grant this prayer technically because you swore here, so this is going to go in the no pile. And he's just waiting for us to get the, the, the words right. So I have good news. This isn't the picture biblically painted for us of Jesus' current and present work. It's painted for us in Hebrews 7:25. It says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's what most of us Christians know. Jesus came to earth, he lived a sinless life, died and rose again for the sins of all, therefore exonerating us from all sin at the cost of his life. And then we know that he ascended to heaven. Like what is he doing now? Like then what, you know? And so I asked this to my students one youth night. Like what would you ask Jesus about what he is doing today? Hands shot up in the air. But here we go, what's your answer? Jesus, what's your skincare routine? And that was the last time <laughs> I asked an open-ended question at youth group. No, it's um, it's a fair question. Like, have we ever wondered what Jesus does? Like, what he gets up in the morning to do? Without a doubt, the Bible paints for us, or the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is interceding or praying for us. Intercession is when a third party comes in between two parties and acts to mediate them, and that's Jesus coming in between us and God. Not that God is reluctant to give forgiveness, but Jesus' interceding work is something they both delight in doing. All of God's promises are a yes and an amen. It also doesn't mean that Christ is unfinished work somehow. That's why he's interceding. Like he's tying up loose ends. His work of salvation is utterly complete. And this truth of our salvation is unshakable. However, there might be a misunderstanding how we've received and lived out this truth. Nothing to do with the truth at all. Especially about the way God operates in prayer. Because if his work is complete and we're all headed towards one direction already, into completion, is there really a point in prayer? Is there a point in me praying for someone when I, you already know what's going to happen? Is there a point in me praying for a situation to change, knowing that there's already a situation that's set to happen? It's a rather deterministic, if not defeatist, attitude that prevents us from fully entering into prayer. Like, why bother? Why bother? And to some small degree, even if we don't believe this, we might be acting on it subconsciously. It's a misunderstanding of prayer that simply views it as a suggestion box or a wish list. Let's see what comes back to me. And this is where Christ's intercession comes in. Our exoneration from sin is a true and beautiful piece of Christian belief, and it tethers us to our forgiveness to Jesus. But Christ's intercession is making what his complete work has already accomplished a moment by moment reality in our lives. It's not enough that we know the recipe to salvation. And some of us know it well. Jesus' intercession continually prays for that recipe to turn into actual taste. And so a new and perhaps better understanding of prayer isn't that I pray the right words in the right combination or did I sin less so that I can deserve what I've asked for? But, did I hear Jesus' heart for me as he prays on my behalf? Did I come to know the one who loves me? I remember when I was playing volleyball back in grade nine, very short career, not an extensive career in volleyball. I wasn't very good. I wasn't very good and our team wasn't very good at all. And um, I played power those of you who are volleyball savvy, it just simply means I didn't have the stature to be in the front row. I was short, very short. And I remember how deflated our team became. We'd lose by, like, big margins and, and, and narrow margins. And it just went on, like, this game after game. So I wouldn't invite my friends purposefully. I'm like, we're really bad. Like, I don't want people to watch me. And we came to the last game of the season, and I said, it's a home game. Like, if we're playing in our school, which I should probably invite my friends. And so they came and they sat in the bleachers, last game of the season, and they were cheering so embarrassingly loud. And it wasn't a lot of, it's grade nine volleyball, there's not a lot of people in that, in that space. So loud, so very clearly my friends. But it was strange. I felt myself fill up with their loud affection. I played better. All my servers went over the net that day, did a couple of good digs, didn't miss a ball. We still walked away, though, with a perfect 0-12 season. I can proudly admit that I am a person of perfection. Losses just all the way down. But my friends' cheers were above the feeling of loss that day. And Jesus' intercession is similar, if not far better. His intercession is like an older brother or a good friend come to your show and your games and cheers you on, loudly. And his prayers are all, yes, Father, yes and amen. Make that real in their lives. Make my love real in their lives. Yes, Father, yes and amen. May they experience your love, your grace, and mercy, all of it, more of it, now, Yes, Father, yes and amen. May you free them from all patterns of sin, even if they've sinned again. We're not just called to agree and believe, but to taste and see. And Jesus lives to do it. It's what gets him up in the morning. To pray that we are more free, more at peace, more accepted than we have ever imagined. He wants nothing more for us than that. And his saving work is complete, which means the race that we have run is a victory lap towards the finish. It's not if we finish. Jesus says, you have finished. I finished it on your behalf. And he's able to completely save, utterly save, which means we will be free, which means we will be fully at peace, which means we will be fully accepted. The future is a journey home for us especially in all places of our hearts that Jesus seeks to give more of himself to. In Dane Ortland's words, God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch touches, sorry, reaches down to the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places where we are most ashamed and most defeated. The width and length, the height and depth of Jesus' love reaches down to the places we feel like his grace cannot touch. His love is so wide, it can hold all of our hurts, all of them. His love is so deep, there is no shame out of his reach. There is no rock bottom he can't get you out of. Jesus was emptied to the uttermost so that we can be filled to the uttermost filled with all the fullness of God, which is another way to say to be filled with all that makes God to be God. All goodness, all peace, all joy, all mercy, all justice, all creativity. And the tense of that verb is passive, meaning we don't do the filling. We don't come to church stuffing ourselves with creativity and love and joy and patience, but simply opening up so that we can be filled. Because the telos or the aim of the human life is to finally be filled with who can finally fulfill us, which is God himself. Anything, anyone else, would be an utter disappointment. And anything less is to live an unfulfilled life. If you have tried other things to fill you, might I boldly suggest Jesus What then do we do? Ask for more. More of God. Because there's more He wants to fill us with in all the rooms of our heart. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus lives to do it. He wants to do it, He works, prays, intercedes to do it. Come to Jesus and keep coming to Jesus. I wanna invite the band back up. And we're gonna spend some, some time to be silent and respond in prayer. And just allow Jesus to speak. And if you haven't had a moment of silence at all this week, this might be a terrifying thing, but I promise you it's only a moment. Because we assume that God speaks through all parts of our service, but specifically through the word. And Jesus, we just want to invite you right now to speak to us by your spirit. It can be as specific as a, a memory or that room that you keep closed, the closets that we keep locked up, or a person that comes to mind, or it can be as generally specific as Jesus just wanting to say, I love you, I know you, and I see you. Jesus, come and speak to our hearts. May we hear your heart for us as you pray on our behalf as you cheer us on, loudly. And then, as we take time to be still and respond to Jesus, I wanna enter into a time of like, of confession with him. And I love this picture of, um, of Paul just taking our hearts into his hands and lifting them up to the Father. And I wonder if we're comfortable enough as an external expression of our fervent longing to know Jesus and have him in all rooms of our heart. If you're comfortable to hold out your hand like this and offer your heart to Jesus. And I'm gonna read out, and this is not for me, I I heard it this morning in a message. And it's it's Jason Ballard's uh, Sort of personal prayer, um, as he goes through this act of confession with God, and it's actually a line. So, if you're a Coldplay fan, it's it's a Coldplay song. It says, "My human heart, only God a human heart. I wish it didn't run away. I wish it didn't fall apart." And so, what we're going to do is, I'll, I'll lead us through that prayer. But if you're comfortable to do that, it's okay if you're just here to observe and just take it all in, that's okay too. But if you're comfortable to hold out your hand, as if to hold out our heart to Jesus, I'll pray for us. My human heart. I've only got a human heart. I wish it didn't run away. I wish it didn't fall apart. but you love my human heart. Jesus, you won't let me run away. Jesus, you won't let me fall apart. Jesus, you love my human heart. You died for my human heart. We offer it back to you. Would you come and love it back to life? Jesus knows how human our hearts are. Jesus knows it better than anyone else. And my invitation to you today is to allow and give Jesus your heart for they're the safest place that they can be is in his hands. All rooms, all identities, all loves, everything. Everything. He loves our human heart. He became a human heart. He died with a human heart to make our human heart fully alive again in His love. I just want to pray that again. My human heart, I only got a human heart. I wish it didn't run away. I wish it didn't fall apart. Jesus, come love my human heart. Amen.